When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gap Fest is brought to you by Carbonite. Keep your digital files safe this year. Protect your photos, music, and documents with automatic cloud backup from Carbonite. Try it free without a credit card at Carbonite.com and use the offer code CULTURE to get two free bonus months if you decide to buy. And by BowlandBranch.com, the company that makes luxury bedding affordable. Get the nicest sheets you've ever owned for about half the price of what stores are charging. Order right now, and they'll give you 20% off your order plus free shipping. Go to bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com, and use the promo code CULTURE. And by audible.com, with more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook at audible.com slash culture. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Never mind, don't hail Charlotte Rampling edition. It's <laughs> Wednesday, January 27th, 2016. And on today's program, we're going to talk about the Oscars, their lack of diversity, the Oscars So White campaign, the campaign to boycott the Oscars, the changes that the Academy has very swiftly made to its voting procedures in an effort to address the issue, and what various boneheaded celebrities, including Charlotte Rampling, have said about the matter. We're also going to talk about Trevor Noah's Daily Show and why it is not as good as Jon Stewart's, basically, for lack of a less blunt way of putting it. But we'll get into the details there. Finally, we're going to talk about Carol uh, as part of our January-February tradition of catching up on the Oscar movies that we did not discuss before the awards hit us. We took the time to see Todd Haynes's wonderful adaptation of a Patricia Highsmith book, and we will discuss it. Steve Metcalf is still on book leave, so we are joined today by Laura Miller. Hello, Laura. Hi. And of course, our wonderful Steve, Cri- Steve, Steve critic. critic. <laughs> on, on occasion, she's our Steve critic, but mostly she's our film critic, Dana Stevens. <laughs> the state of Steve today. <laughs> we should just do an all Steve show while he's out. Um, Dana, of course, is also on book leave, but I feel like we haven't maybe been quite clear enough about this with our listeners. Dana's on book leave writing her book about Buster Keaton that we've discussed, but she's not going on leave from the show. I'm on leave from writing. She's on leave from writing for Slate.com, but not podcasting. So don't don't tense up with fear at Dana-less shows to come. Dana's going to... Also, never fear, because I'm sure that when the Oscars happen, I will have to pop up and write something. (laughs) So Dana and Laura are both here with us today. We're also joined for our first segment by Aisha. Aisha Harris. Hi, Aisha. Hello. Aisha's been covering the Oscars for Browbeat and is going to talk to us a bit about the controversy around Oscar So White, the nominations and the changes at the Academy. Uh, Aisha, why don't you start by walking us through how this all began? Well, this is the second year in a row now where we've had um, all white nominees for the acting categories. So um, last year when that happened for the first time in a long time it was there was a campaign that went around uh started i think on twitter which was hashtag oscars so white and um this is the second year in a row now and i think the way 
that things have gone over the past few years, especially with things outside of Hollywood between Black Lives Matter and, and all these this more social attention that's being paid to these uh, the issues of diversity. It's kind of come to a head now where the second year in a row, people are really fed up. Uh, Spike Lee, he said he wasn't going to he, he's now kind of not backtracked, but he's clarified his statements, uh, his original original statement saying that he's not planning to boycott. He's just not planning to show up um, at the Oscars. And it is kind of a big deal for him because he did receive an honorary Oscar in, I think, November and was presented with it at a ceremony. And usually they are recognized at the Oscars again. And then Jada Pinkett Smith also released a a short video saying she is planning to boycott. Um, Will Smith, her husband, has also come out and said he's also going to boycott. So it's kind of become a, a, a really big deal, the fact that, you know, we had all of these um, white uh, nominees and some people have questioned, well, maybe there just weren't enough roles or, or maybe there just weren't enough roles for black people. And then other people have argued that, well, that's not true. There are people like uh, Ryan Coogler for Creed and, and Michael B. Jordan for Creed as well. Um, so it's just gotten it's. Sweeping change is happening uh, quicker than I think a lot of us expected it to. So that you've laid out the controversy very nicely. And and I think Creed is the big movie that people thought and hoped might get nominations this year. And straight out of Compton. And straight out of Compton, which did get a writing nomination for its white writer, but but not for any of the performances. And of course, Sylvester Stallone for Creed and the only nomination for Creed. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, last year, just to, to refresh, the I think the biggest controversy was that Selma received no nominations? Selma received Best Picture, but it didn't receive uh, a Best Picture nomination, and it won Best Original Song. But other than that, David Oyelowo was not nominated. Ava DuVernay, the director, was not nominated. And the cinematography wasn't... So basically... That 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 was was considered considered the the grievous oversight last year. So this controversy had started to percolate and came to a head both because of all of these celebrities threatening to boycott... There also began to be questions about whether Chris Rock, who's hosting, might pull out. He's affirmed now that he will continue to host and that he thinks he can call more attention to these issues by hosting for this audience of millions. But then the Academy also moved quite swiftly and announced last Friday a set of changes around how voting would work that seemed designed to diversify the body of the Academy. The Academy is notoriously secret, but there was some data in, t- in 2012 that came out, I think, that s- said upwards of 90 percent of the Academy voters were white and upwards of 75 percent, I think, were men. The primary change in voting policy is that when you become a voting member, you will retain those privileges for 10 years. And then if at the end of that decade you are still working and active in Hollywood, it can be renewed. Once you've logged three of those decade long terms and you've 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 landed a 30 stint working in Hollywood, then you get lifetime privileges. You also get lifetime voting privileges if you have won an Academy Award. Or are nominated for one, which actually really broadens the field a lot. That's lifetime as well. Or are nominated for one. So so those will be the people who will get to vote. What that then does is take a set of people who are older, essentially, and haven't worked in a long time and never were nominated and didn't retroactively have the equivalent of three 10-year stints, and they will retain their academy privileges, but not their voting privileges. I still want someone to do an explain around what are the privileges of being a member of the academy besides voting for the academy You awards. probably get a lot of screeners, um, goodie bags. Right. I'm sure there are events, and maybe there's some sort of like 
networking type of thing, I imagine. Uh, yeah. Or discounts at Musso and Frank. <laughs> <laughs> In any event. Um, and that does seem basically designed to winnow the ranks of sort of old people who did something once in Hollywood in the 60s or 70s and are still voting, perhaps with our assumptions of the general generational preferences of those people. They're also going to try and actively recruit more members, female members and members of color, and they're going to add three new seats to the Board of Governors, presumably to be held by people with diverse backgrounds to help influence how they set policy. So those are the changes, pretty big changes, I think, announced pretty swiftly in the wake of this crisis. I mean, I suppose since it started percolating last year, they've had a long time to think about it. I'm curious first, Dana, what you make of these changes, whether you think they'll beget changes in the way we recognize movies. Yeah, I mean, I was impressed, if nothing else, as you say, with the speed with which they were addressed. I mean, you would think it would be something that they would hem and haw and issue a kind of throat-clearing statement about, and then after this award season was over, they would think about actually overhauling the system. Instead, it seems like they're they're getting out in front of it, which is a good thing. But I don't know. I mean, as I as I think I said in a couple interviews when the Oscar nominations came out, complaining at this point on along the stream seems like it's only going to fix so many problems. You know, I mean, it, it might be analogous, for example, to looking at the world of higher education and saying, you know, why aren't there more black PhDs from Ivy League schools? I mean, that's an excellent question, but that question goes all the way back to elementary education. And, and, and in this case, it just sort of seems like Things need to be fixed further up the pipeline, which doesn't mean it couldn't help to tweak the constitution of the voting at the academy. But it just seems like the problem that you hear from people in Hollywood of color or women or anybody who's sort of outside the power circle is that they're not able to get work and get their scripts read and get go to the right casting calls and get work in the first place. So maybe that extra (laughs) carrot of recognition will make studios more interested in feeding people into that pipeline. But I don't know. It just it seems like one of those places where it's a symbolic gesture that needs to be accompanied with some some real groundwork in the, the system itself. Laura, I'm curious what what you make of this controversy. What I found most interesting in particular about a piece that Aisha wrote about Charlotte Rampling's comments on this issue, which we'll get to a little bit later, was that the Oscars, in their weird way, are never really a meritocracy. And personally, as a person who is more of a dilettante with movies than a regular film goer, I think of the Oscars as like those student body elections in in high school. You know, it's like a weird sort of popularity contest or who makes the funniest speech or, you know, like they it doesn't seem to be that directed by a real concern with the best performances and the best roles. There's all this other stuff that comes into it that seems to overwhelm what I would think of as just the quality of the work. So, you know, it, 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 I have to say, I've never really taken them that seriously, which is pretty common for people in arts criticism. I don't know, Dana, I mean, every film critic I've ever known has complained about having to cover the Oscars as if they were something serious. Yeah. I mean, I guess the idea that the Oscars are some sort of, um, and here we are getting close to Charlotte Rampling's comments, actually, but that there's some some sort of level playing field of pure merit and that the nominees are these, you know, racehorses who all start at the gate and are the given an equal chance. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just all of it is part of this kind of fantasy engendered by 
I guess, the hype around the Oscars. I don't know. I mean, the Oscars seem to me important as a measure of what our nation is valuing symbolically at that moment. You know, and so in that sense, the idea that there would be some symbolic evaluation of diversity is better than there not being that symbolic valuation. But all of it is taking place in this very rarefied realm that has much more to do with merchandising and hype than with actual performances or films. Well, it's a it's a tricky line to walk, right? Because I agree with you that the the in I well, I, I wrote it, but I, I think <laughs> that um, the Oscars really it's like maybe fifty percent about merit and mostly about who can campaign the best, is Weinstein on your side, that kind of thing. And things that are completely outside of anyone's power, like who's due, you know, who's due for an right. award, exactly. that kind of thing. Sentimental awards and Or who played a, a disabled person. Exactly. I mean, that is like a, such a weird factor in A disabled this. person, or in the case of this year, um, Eddie Redmayne p- playing a trans person. Like this level of like, oh, you were so brave, which is, you know, bull. But, but he'll th- never that- get the award because he already got his Brave Transformation Award last year. Last year for playing a disabled person. Um, right. And meanwhile, was Leo actually brave for being in the, in the dark and snow of Canada for <laughs> however many months? For like climbing inside that Fighting off bear carcasses. <laughs> the horse or... was brave. <laughs> but I mean, that's the thing, though, is that at the same time, though, there is a reason why these awards are important, at least for the people who are being nominated and winning them. Um, one of my favorite blogs, uh, Very Smart Brothers, they wrote a great piece. Um, and it's been said before, but I think you have to reiterate it every time we talk about these things. It's, and the piece was about, like, why the Oscars are important to black artists and and to artists in general and the fact is is it's it's kind of twofold one it's being recognized by your peers and no matter how much you say you love the art like everyone i think most people who do hard work and and work for what they want want to be recognized for it and then the other the other thing is that having oscar nominee blink in front of your name or oscar winner is is like a a huge step in your career. You can command more money. You can have a better choice in the roles you take. So, like, there is a reason why it is important to have as many different types of people being represented right. within the Oscars. And not just for that individual who gets the, to have that name, you know, that prize appended to their name, but because of the message it sends to the industry, right? I mean, like, when, when Catherine Bigelow won for Hurt Locker, that was, that was a huge thing, not just because it was great to see a woman at the podium getting the award, but because it sort of sets a precedent and makes people take female directors more seriously. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think to your point, Dana, that the the real place where change needs to start is in the in the producing rooms and in the greenlighting rooms and in the kinds of meetings that people take and the kinds of talent they look for and the places they look for talent. You're right that this is not going to create directly as the most amount of change in terms of who gets opportunities and who gets interesting work and who gets to make great things in Hollywood. But I actually wouldn't underestimate the value of people feeling like different kinds of work have the potential to get recognized and that the size and scale of the accomplishment of a movie like Creed could include Oscar recognition for the actors in it and and for Selma. I mean, the, the, the sense that the path to getting all of the different merits that the industry allows and any kind of industry award is beset with its own silliness and habits and customs and is only as accurate as it is, but still, it, it's meaningful to get those awards. So I, I do actually think that it's pretty impressive how fast the Academy moved and that hopefully this will beget both some change in what gets recognized and some change in what kinds of things 
get made. Let's talk a little bit before we adjourn here about Charlotte Rampling as a proxy for all of these old white actors who've just been so dumb about this in public. We spent last week quelling about Charlotte and her wonderful performance in the wonderful movie 45 Years, which both are still wonderful despite what she said, and also a uh, sort of devastatingly icy cameo in London Spy, the show we discussed last week with June Thomas. And we spent so much time talking about how great she was that we called our show last week All Hail Charlotte Rampling, only for her to come out like 25 hours later and be like, I think it's racist to talk about Oscars so white. How do they know that the best performances weren't just white? Maybe we all got nominated on our own merits. And I imagine she said it with all of the imperious don't give a fuck iciness for which she is sometimes admired. But man, that was a bunch of stupid things for her to say. And she tried to walk it back this week and claim that she had uh, been misunderstood. But I think if you listen to her original conversation, it's clear that she was not particularly muddled or hesitant about her views. So let's hold, let's, having praised Charlotte extensively, let's hold her feet to the fire and actually play the original clip of her interview, which was in French. We'll play the French clip and then we'll make Dana tell us what it said. Alors justement, cette année, les Oscars sont secoués par une polémique. Aucun acteur, aucune actrice noire dans la sélection pour la deuxième année consécutive. Est-ce que vous comprenez euh, la colère, par exemple, de Spike Lee qui appelle au boycott de la cérémonie Non, je, je, je trouve ça, c'est ça, c'est dans, dans l'autre sens, euh, voilà, raciste, raciste pour les blancs. Ah oui, vraiment ben oui, parce que on peut jamais savoir si c'est vraiment le cas, mais parfois, peut-être les acteurs noirs ne, ne, ne méritaient pas être dans la dernière ligne droite. Alors lui, il explique qu'il faudrait aller jusqu'à l'instauration de quotas euh, de représentation des minorités dans le cinéma américain pour qu'ils puissent accéder à ces sélections-là. Pourquoi le classer les gens on, on est quand même, on vit dans une dans des pays na, maintenant où, où quand même on est plus ou moins accepté, mais il y aura toujours des, des problématiques un petit peu. Lui il est moins beau, lui il est trop noir, lui il est trop blanc, lui il, il y aura toujours toujours quelqu'un qu'on qu va dire oh vous êtes trop. Mmh. Et donc on va dire ah bah on va faire on va classer tout ça pour faire des, des milliers de petites minorités partout. Mmh. Le fait qu'ils se sentent eux encore comme une minorité, ça vous parle pas ça Eux, ils se sentent comme une minorité. Ils disent, nous, on est des acteurs noirs et on n'existe pas suffisamment. No comment. I didn't hear that part before. Uh, I don't even speak French, but she sounded very emphatic. <laughs> yeah, everyone, hearing, hearing in context does not really improve the situation. Everyone sounds kind of imperious when they speak French, but especially her. God. <laughs> I mean, I guess if I'm supposed to translate roughly, the, the interviewer asked her what she thought of Spike Lee's desire to boycott the Oscars. And then she said, I think what he's proposing goes in the other direction, that it's racist against white people, which is, I think, the big pull quote from what she said, right? It's racist against the whites. And then I guess all that happens after that is that the interviewer continues to press her a little bit. And uh, and when Charlotte Rampling essentially insists, pourquoi classer les gens? Why are we dividing people into different groups? The interviewer says, well, but in fact, it is the case that black actors feel marginalized and, you know, that they have been shoved to the sidelines. What do you have to say about that? And that's when she responds with no comment. So, yeah, hearing it in the context doesn't really bring any subtlety or nuance. <laughs> she is, she's definitely dismissing the whole notion of diversity. That, that whole weekend was kind of like so depressing because after her then came Michael Caine. What did Michael Caine say exactly? He said uh, black actors should be patient. And he also said something along the lines of like, 
are we all just going to vote for like are black people are going to black vote for black people you know the the usual thing about like you shouldn't vote based on color even though you know that's yeah it seems there. like both of them so something rampling said too presumes this level playing field and i think that is maybe to some degree and associated with their age and their their generation right? right then there was julie delpy's comment where she basically said at sundance this past weekend um you know, women have it the worst out of everyone in Hollywood. I wish I was an African-American because I could say stuff without getting any pushback, <laughs> which is just the most ridiculous thing. <sighs> it, was, it was very depressing. A few days of like all the white older actors that I've respected saying really dumb shit. I think one thing that strikes me about the big names that came out on this issue, so Charlotte Rampling, Michael Caine, Julie Delpy, is that they're all European. I know there were a few others. Uh, Robert Redford was sort of like, let's not get into this too much and a bit of a sort of, he seemed to be like Heismaning the issue away from Sundance a little bit. Um, but in any event, the three big, most irritating and offensive comments that people were mulling over the weekend were made by older white Europeans. And I do, without apologizing for them, do think that their perspective on the racial dynamics of American movie making and and how America both thinks about race generally historically and what the racial conversation has been in America over the last few years and the kind of productive ways in which it's been more at the forefront of people's discussions and people's understanding, maybe they're a little bit out of it. I don't know. I mean, I think there's some truth to that. I don't know as I'm I'm not as familiar with European dynamics when it comes to race as I am with American. But at the same time, these are the same arguments that I've heard tons of white Americans make all the time, including Matt Damon, who earlier last year, a big to do about um, the TV show Project Greenlight. And he said, you know, change doesn't happen behind the camera. It happens in front of the camera, which is, is another kind of, you know, ignorant statement about the way change happens in the way filmmaking happens. So yeah, well, I agree that there it, there is something to be said for the fact that they are European. I think there's also just... There's plenty of Americans who feel it, that way, it, too. It, it crosses all cultures, I feel You're, like. That's totally fair. I had forgotten about the Matt Damon flap, but that was very unappealing. Agree. Aisha's article, again, was... Charlotte Rampling wonders if black actors deserve Oscars, comma, doesn't understand how Oscars work. And Aisha's also been covering the Oscars more generally for us. We'll post a link to our Oscar topic page on our show page. Thanks again, Aisha. Thank you. All right. Now is the moment in our show when we hear from our first sponsor, Dana. Julia, the Slate Culture Gap Fest this week is sponsored by Carbonite. How much of your life is on your computer? In my case, I would say... I don't know, upwards of 85% of my life, easily. Sounds about right. And what if your digital files vanished forever, Laura Miller? Catastrophe. It's it's pretty bad. I think something like this has probably happened to most of us. It has happened to me. It happened to me in 2005. And you're still regretting that data loss? April 10th, 2005. <laughs> and you, were, you lost all your data and were never able to get it back? Let's just say I lost and digitized audio recording of an interview I did with David Foster Wallace. It's tragic to me. Before you had transcribed it or anything? No, no. I had a transcription, but I didn't have the... I had the actual recording, a digital version of it, and my hard drive melted down, and it sort of secretly behind the scenes, like that food in the back of your cupboard that starts to rot and gets, like, moths in it, all my files started to get corrupted. It was a nightmare. That sounds horrible, but at least you have the... (laughs) 
the defense that it was years ago, and I presume you have a backup plan now? Oh, boy, do I ever. I, on the other hand, managed to spill a glass of water onto my computer keyboard just two weeks ago and wound up, although some things were backed up, the most important things were not backed up. Put oh, it that way. God. And I wound up spending as much as a new new computer would have cost just to get my, my data back. So I am the one who should be listening to my own ad copy here with Carbonite Cloud Backup. Your photos, your music, your documents, your book, in my case, and all your other files are backed up automatically to the cloud. More than one and a half million home and small business customers trust Carbonite. You can start your free trial today at Carbonite.com with no credit card required. Just use the offer code CULTURE to get two free bonus months of Carbonite.com if you decide to buy. That's Carbonite.com, offer code CULTURE. Okay, Julia, back to the show. Joining us for our second segment today is Slate TV critic Willa Paskin. Hello, Willa. Hi, Julia. Welcome. Uh, we are going to talk today about the piece you wrote and published on Slate this week about The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, or rather about the John Stewart-shaped and sized hole in the politico-comedic landscape this election season. Tell us a little bit about uh, why you thought it was a good moment to evaluate how The Daily Show has evolved with Trevor Noah at the helm. Well, we're in the midst of a totally bananas election that every day is coughing up something absurd and simultaneously meaningful that you sort of wish you could just laugh at, but kind of is more important than that because we're talking about electing our president. Yes, and uh, exactly how racist our nation is. That too. There's a lot going on. <laughs> and were you? Have you been keeping up with uh, the Daily Show with Trevor Noah generally? And been sort of watching it as it evolved, or did you find suddenly that you weren't watching it and you wanted to figure out why? What was the impetus? This is a little bit of a loaded question because I'm going to reveal my TV habits in a way that's not super um, helpful necessarily for framing this piece. But I am not personally a huge fan of late night in any form. I like preferred the Daily Show and the Colbert Report to late night that's on network TV, but I am just not a late night person. I genuinely don't kind of understand the point of network late night shows. I understand the point of Colbert and The Daily Show, um, but I never was a, I never have been like a regular watcher. I, of course, like everybody, have seen a lot of it the morning after, and I, because I am a TV critic, have also seen a lot of it because I have made myself watch it from time to time. But I basically was just sort of checking in on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah because it's my job, not because I had been watching and suddenly like, damn, he's no good. <laughs> so I think one of the most striking phrases in your piece is you talk about the bloodless finesse of Trevor Noah and how, although he is affable and working hard and making passable jokes, those jokes don't seem to have any particular stance or point of view. He seems to be kind of mugging on the election rather than using comedy to help interpret the election for his audience in any meaningful way. You raise some questions about whether that has to do with his background as a non-American and compare him to John Oliver, who's managed to make his outsider status a, a point of analysis in his shows. Once you engaged with the show, what surprised you about his approach? What led you to those conclusions? Well, I think what's interesting if you watch it is how professional it is as you start watching it. Like, There's nothing that is dramatically wrong with the show. It's a guy on camera who is extremely comfortable on camera, very adorable and charming, telling like pretty good jokes about ridiculous news events. So if you just sort of let it wash over you, it washes over you totally pleasantly in a way that is I think, extremely similar to the Jimmy's on Late Night. Like there's something very soothing and kind of funny about it. But if you continue to watch it, you just realize that it's 
not sort of telling you anything you didn't know. It's not really smarter than you, the audience, about the ridiculous stuff that's happening. And I don't think that that is at all how you could describe the function of The Daily Show or certainly The Daily Show under Jon Stewart, which is like regularly he elevated this absurdity to some kind of great height, at which point he had like taught you something or elucidated something or, you know, brought his insight or his outrage to bear in a way that was really, you know, you like was was sort of enlightening in addition to being, I think, a higher order kind of funny because it was so much more complex. Like he just doesn't care and he's just not bothered in a totally identifiable way. Like this is the beauty of going on vacation to other countries. I mean, this is a snobby thing to say or whatever. But, you know, you're just like this is it's almost like you're in some fantasy land where the things that are happening that matter to everyone there don't matter to you. And there's a way that that feels like he's like, I've landed in this circus show of this election and it just I'm so amused and interested a little bit but I just don't it doesn't he doesn't feel it so you mean he doesn't have an editorial point of view in a way the way the way yeah the show just definitely no longer has the point of view that it had and obviously they kept a ton of the writers but John Stewart was obviously a very important part of how that show was written and who it was written for and his point of view did dictate sort of not only what they were covering, but the way they were covering it, just like his capabilities as almost an actor. And I think that Trevor Noah doesn't have that point of view yet. I mean, it's even just little things like his impersonations of an American accent. He does a lot of amazing accents. His American accent is terrible. His impersonation of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump is identical. Like, I mean, these are, (laughs) you know, these guys are both New York actors. It's very close, but they're not the same. And they sound exactly the same. Like, it's just... They sound like Law & Order extras, kind of. it's It's just like these little kind of things where... It's sort of just, I mean, that's really little. That's really granular. But they do sort of just add up to the sense of someone who's just like has this great material but doesn't like himself know exactly how he should be working around it. And I think the default joke that they often have fallen to is comparing um, what's happening in America to his experience with politics in Africa, which sometimes pays off beautifully as it does in this like this one of this early sketches about how Trump is actually an African dictator, which is hilarious and enlightening, but sometimes can really not pay off and just feels like just his only point of reference, like as when he compared, when he sort of said at the beginning of the state of of Obama's State of the Union, when Obama says, I'm thinking about the next five years and 10 years, Trevor Noah says, when you hear an African ruler say that, you know, they're planning never to leave power. And for a second, I thought like Obama was just going to hold on to the to the reins of power. And that's like funny in the moment. But what is that joke actually mean? Like it actually has nothing to do with the State of the Union. It isn't what was happening. And it's kind of like making fun of African politics. It's not. And it's not illuminating about Obama in any particular way. I mean, one thing that strikes me about this, I I think your set of observations seems very precise and more devastating for being fairly generous hearted (laughs) because, I mean, poor guy. Trevor Noah has been doing it for four or five months. Jon Stewart was pretty great when he started and then had however many years to hone his craft. You know, we we can give Noah some time to figure yeah. figure out a point of view and perspective. But one thing that also struck me in the hiring and the move is that John Stewart has always been very resistant to acknowledging the political stance or import of his show. Like he always liked to pretend when people interviewed or asked him about his show that he was just wagon and it was just jokes and everybody who thought he was an important player on the political scene was uh, putting too much weight on him. He's just a comedian. Like his whole just a comedian shtick I always found very thin and irritating because it, it seemed clear at the time and seems even more clear in retrospect once you start pointing it out. Willa, 
that, of course, that's not what it was. The show was very much elevated by being political commentary delivered through the medium of, like, daily news No, I mean, also, Jon Stewart every, like, every week would be absolutely in a state of, like, genuine anger about something that was happening. I mean, he would make it funny, but he was not passively amused or, like... It wasn't just, like, nothing to him. Like, it wasn't just funny to him. It's not material to him. I mean, it was obviously also material to him, but it was so personal because it was horrible. You know, it's like it was ball bullshit mounted, and he had this mission genuinely to try to, like, eradicate some of the garbage that is, like, clogging our conversation. Trevor Noah just does not have currently that sort of passion about about American politics completely understandably, but I think in this instance, it's like a real problem for the show. I also feel like when he talks about Africa, it's almost in the same way that he talks about America. You know, like, it's just like, isn't it funny that we have these dictators that that stick around forever? I mean, there's something kind of bland and unexercised about it, that even the thing that he's bringing that's interesting, which are these comparisons... He just seems so entertained by it as if these African dictators were just like his amusing, you know, relatives right. or something. That, that Right. It's a bit glib. Dana, you were a Daily Show. Weren't you a Daily Show watcher for a long time? Well, I was a huge watcher in the days of the Bush administration and the, the Iraq war. And I, it hadn't occurred to me before, Willa, but it's so true that social media was not then what it is now, right? I mean, Twitter didn't exist and Facebook was sort of just getting started. And I kind of feel like The Daily Show for me in that age, that day and age, played a little bit that role. It was a place to kind of unpack like the, the political tensions of the day and, and laugh about them because those were years where you would open the newspaper every day and just say, I cannot believe, you know, how, how can our nation be going down this road? And it seemed like there's there's this one sane man at night speaking to it. And so maybe, you know, Trevor Noah aside, maybe there just isn't anyone who, who holds that place in the culture right now. All right. Well, well, thank you so much for uh, for watching all of that, Trevor Noah, for giving him such loving advice that we'll see. We'll see what he does. With I'm sure it. he appreciates this so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you. Okay, now is the moment in our show when we talk about our second sponsor, Dana. This Late Culture Gab Fest is also sponsored this week by Bowl and Branch. There's one important thing you can do to make sure you have a good day the next day, and that is get a good night's sleep at night. And Bowl and Branch has made this possible by reinventing sheets and bedding with the sole purpose of making your nights more comfortable than ever. Their bedding is so soft, it will be a new standard of comfort you'll measure everything else by. I can attest to that as a person who sleeps on these sheets almost every night. They also, in addition to sheets, make um, they're now making some clothing items, including an infinity scarf that our producer Ann Hepperman used to stay warm during the blizzard last week. You can only get these products at one place, bowlandbranch.com, where you know you're paying for quality sheets and not department store overhead. Go online to bowl, that's B-O-L-L, and branch.com, and they'll let you try the sheets risk-free for 30 nights. And it gets even better. Go to bowlandbranch.com today for 20% off your entire order. Sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, infinity scarves, anything you can find on their website. Gets free shipping and comes beautifully packaged in their signature boxes. So go to bowlandbranch.com today for 20% off your whole order. Use the promo code CULTURE. Okay, Julia, what's next? All right. Our third topic today is part of our Oscar flashback series where we go and watch and scrutinize and discuss movies which are nominated for Oscars, which we didn't get to talk about the first time around. Today, we're focusing on Carol. This is the adaptation of Patricia Highsmith's book, The Price of Salt, which she published under a pseudonym 
because of its lesbian subject matter and only acknowledged late in her life. The script was adapted by Phyllis Nagy, and the film was directed by Todd Haynes, and it looks sumptuous. When I went to see it this weekend, I was like, we're in for a night of sumptuous lesbianism. It's going to be sumptuousness and lesbianism, and there was both. Uh, I'm curious, Dana, you mentioned last week when we were still hailing Charlotte Rampling uh, that probably 45 Years and Carol were your top two films of the year. So we'll start with you. I'd love to hear what you made of this movie and what you thought was particularly great about it. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Carol's been so widely praised. What what can I bring? What can I bring to the table that's new? I, th- what I love about Todd Haynes at his best, and I think Carol is one of his best, is that he is at once kind of kind of the consummate filmmaker. This is a film that's very aware of itself as a film, and that's very um, technically accomplished, and uh, and sort of brings together all of the technical things that can make a film great. The music, which is from Carter Burwell, the cinematography, which is by Ed Lockman, who's worked with Todd Haynes for a long time. This great script, which you know, it's the first time that Todd Haynes has filmed a script he didn't write actually the first time he's worked on on someone else's project but so it, it kind of it gets all of that technical stuff right and it also tells an incredibly passionate emotional story in a way that to me was extremely moving I know some critics found this movie and have historically found Todd Haynes to be too cold and cerebral and removed and that because he has that kind of deliberate artificiality you know that this movie deliberately looks like a movie from the early 1950s or almost like our dream, you know, some sort of dream through a scrim of what a movie in the early 1950s looked like. Because of all of that that aesthetic distancing, I think some people find it hard to cry in his movies, and I don't. <laughs> they make me weep and weep and weep. And I loved the love story in this. I don't know. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just ranting. You, you pick it up from here, Laura. Um, this movie I saw around the same time that I saw Brooklyn, and which is another movie that I really loved for that particular thing that only movies can do, which is just like ravish your eyeballs, you know? I mean, it just was so gorgeous and um, intoxicating, and both involved department stores as they used to be (laughs) operated, which I found really fascinating, you know, just the different ways that a department store clerk worked in the 50s versus how they work now. There's just that fascination for all of the, the textures of it. I my only reservation about Carol, which I loved, is that I didn't think that the two leads had that much chemistry with each other. I didn't actually believe that they lusted after each other. And so Does that have to do with the coldness and the remove? No, because I, I don't about? see his films as cold at all. I don't really under, even understand that that criticism. I mean, they're stylized in that sort of Douglas Cirque way, but I think of that style as being just suffused with feelings and that the feelings are all attached as much to, as you pointed out in your piece, Carol's amazing gloves or that incredible car that she drives. Yeah, there's or, a lot of um, luxury good fetishism in this yeah, movie. Yeah, And also to Therese's wardrobe, you know, her, her camo shanter or whatever, all of these things feel filled with emotion to me. So I, I found it a really emotional movie, especially the ending. I just did not believe that the two characters, I, I felt like there was missing a sort of fire of of really physical desire. And do you think that had to do with the way their love scenes were staged or something in the script? Or do you think it was actually that those two actresses didn't I just don't think the spark? actresses had that much chemistry with each other. I believe that they liked each other and were interested in each other, but I didn't think that they wanted to jump each other's bones. I do think there's a question in the film about, uh, without getting too far into the ending, I think there's two ways to make this movie. One is as a love story, like these two people have found each other and they are 
meant for each other and they should be together and will will they find a way to be together? And the other is as an act of recognition and what it meant to, through the help of another person who's more experienced in a lifestyle that you don't know anything about and, and can b- barely have the power to recognize in yourself, helps you to understand who you are. And I found the movie much more powerful in that second register of what it meant to not quite want the things you are supposed to want, your cute, hunky boyfriend who's dying to take you on a cruise to Europe and keeps <laughs> bugging you about it, and you just feel on some level that you don't just don't want to do that with him, but you don't know why, and so you kind of keep rebuffing him, and you don't quite feel right in selling dollies to mommies in the shop, and there's something that feels off about it, but you don't quite know why, and suddenly the power of this beautiful woman seeing you and mesmerizing you and understanding what it might be like to see her and understand a different way to be in the world, completely changing your life and giving you the power to recognize yourself. That story to me was incredibly powerful. It plays a little bit on the question of how much are they meant for each other. Carol, the the older woman, the character played by Kate Blanchett, has plenty of problems in her life. She's She's a bit of a predator, maybe, or a, she's 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 a little bit irresponsible with her affections. She's not; it's not exactly super sensible for her to go after this young shop girl at this particular moment in her life for various reasons. Um, so I liked it better when there was when it was a little bit less of a love story and more of a story of discovery and recognition and a coming of age. Kind yeah, of and I thought it was very powerful in that register, and so. To my mind, there were aspects of the ending that that I felt might have been more powerful if they had been handled differently, um, and that was my one reservation about it. But it's, uh, I think it's great. Also, really powerful is the way that the disintegration of Carol's marriage is depicted and her relationship to her husband in the process of becoming ex-husband and his sort of vengefulness and resentment and her fear of what he can do to separate her from her child. And there's that amazing scene in the lawyer's office where she behaves so beautifully. You know, all of that felt, you know, that was as emotional to me as other parts of the movie that dealt with the love story part of it. Yeah. What kind of name is Harge? (laughs) <laughs> her her confused, bewildered husband, Waspy, I guess, played by I mean, I Kyle think Chandler. Smith is amazing at names. Just listen to these character names: Carol Aird, Harge Aird, and Therese Bellavet. They're just excellent names. Have you read the novel? Place I of haven't. Salt? No, I read it because this movie was coming out, and uh, I I highly recommend it. It's very different from any Patricia Highsmith novel right. you've ever read. Although, as someone interestingly observed, I mean, essentially all of her insight into the criminal mind that you see in the Ripley books and Strangers on a Train and her more criminal thrillers is is all transposed into you know the secret looks between people in a secret community. So that that criminal mind is still sort of at work, you know, in in the in, a, in the closet. Well, it sounds like we all think that our listeners should go see the movie if they haven't already. Before we conclude, let's talk a little bit about the two main performances in more detail. Both uh, Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara were nominated for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress, respectively, for playing Carolyn Therese. Tell me what you guys made of their handling of the roles. I mean, my, my first response to that, that they were both nominated, is that there's a bit of category fraud going on to get more Carol actors on the slate, because clearly Rooney Mara is, if, if, if either of them is the protagonist of the movie, it's her, right? Yeah. yeah, actually, I would invert the two, because it's really about Rooney Mara and her 
transformation, I think. Right. And though the title is Carol, it's not really the story of Carol. It's the story of someone's idealization and, you know, fantasies and projections onto and then eventually affair with Carol. The character of Carol is really interestingly played. It's a really delicately calibrated performance because usually Kate Blanchett appears very feminine and Carol is superficially very feminine, you know, in the way she dresses and the way she talks, but yet she injects this kind of slightly butch quality into Carol that I found completely fascinating. Yeah, the costume design there is really extraordinary. There's this moment where she looks to our eyes incredibly posh and ladylike and very 50s with she's got brooches and she's got covered buttons and plackets and peplums and I mean she just looks <laughs> so femme to our current eye uh, but she's driving with her ex-girlfriend now platonic friend played nicely by Sarah Paulson to this kind of stuffy uh, country club dance party type event that she's been strong-armed into attending by Harge and she gets very fretful about her appearance and gets very nervous going into it. And you sort of realize that this she's kind of got a fitted blazer over a day dress and all of the other women there have these kind of scoop-necked lace frocks. And you're like, oh, that is that is butch for 50s, even though yeah. it seems so over-the-top femme to us now. Well, apparently Sandy Powell, the costume designer who's fantastic and who I think should get an Oscar for this movie if anyone should – was one of the first people attached to the project. There was a period, a long period, when Phyllis Nodge was shopping this screenplay around and different directors were attached and then left before they got Haynes finally. But Kate Blanchett and Sandy Powell were the two people who were in it from the beginning. So, you know, the star and the costume designer. I also think the costume design is really crucial with Rooney Mara's character. And I really loved Rooney Mara in this. I think I know her primarily from her, you know, sassy bit part in The Social Network and then her glowering, skulking, girl-with-a-dragon tattoo turn for David Fincher, where she's certainly kind of electric, skeletal, sulking, and potent in that role, but um, also like sort of scorpionic and not quite human and otherworldly. And she's so soft and full and subtle in this performance. I thought she was wonderful. It's a very tough role, harder than Kate Blanchett's in a way, I think. I mean, Kate Blanchett is perfect. You can't imagine anyone else in that role. I mean, all kudos to her, but it's something that we already knew Kate Blanchett can do. Yeah. Whereas I do, I agree that you see something new. And I think it's very hard to play naive, the naive ingenue, and not be boring, you know, and she really does. She has to be naive, confused, unsure of herself, and yet sure of herself, and she plays, the, the the movie transforms the plot of the book. In the book, she's an aspiring set designer. And in the film, she's an aspiring photographer. And it really plays with that that idea nicely of kind of what are you looking at and what are you looking for? Uh, and that sense of her as someone who's very gently questing towards something. And who changes hugely over the course of the movie. There's a scene where they haven't seen each other for a while, and Carol says to Therese, you've really blossomed, you know, and it's such a kind of a, a cliched thing to say to a young woman. But but we see it ourselves. We see it happening over the course of the movie, and partly because of Carol and because of the photographs she takes of her. Well, um, the movie is Carol. It's an adaptation of Patricia Highsmith, directed by Todd Haynes. Uh, you should definitely check out the film and come to our show page, facebook.com slash culturefest, to talk about what you liked about the movie, or if you didn't, we're happy to entertain your countervailing views. And before we endorse, let's hear a word from our final sponsor today. 
The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Audible. And Dana, I know that you love the audiobook that you listen to of The Price of Salt by Patricia Highsmith. Yeah, it's actually lucky that we have an Audible ad placement this week because I have a very full-hearted uh, Audible book to recommend, which is The Price of Salt, Unabridged, read by Cassandra Campbell on audible.com. I don't know why I happened to listen to the book that way. I think it was because it was a period when I was cleaning out my office and doing a lot of handwork and wasn't able to sort of hold a book. I don't usually listen to fiction as much as nonfiction on, on audiobooks, but uh, but this reader was so wonderful, and she she really got the price of salt with that particular tone it has. I don't know. You haven't read the price of salt, but you've read some Highsmith. There's a certain kind of um, obser- keenly observant and slightly icy yes. tone, and she she really gets Which it. Which the Highsmith fan loves. Um, yeah, I am a huge fan of this company. I probably own hundreds of audiobooks, and every day I eagerly await their email of the deal of the day, which I have gotten some great stuff from at very reasonable prices. Audible.com is the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. Their content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio podcasts, and users can sign up as an Audible listener, which gives them book credits each month for a low monthly fee. Customers download their choices and can access them on their iPhone, Android, Kindle, iPod, and any other MP3 player. Okay, so the good news is that Audible is offering listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash culture and choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash culture and get started today. All right, now is the moment in our show when we endorse Dana. What have you liked in the world of culture now or past or future this past week? Oh, my God. I had such an intense cultural week that I could have many different answers to that question because I went to Norway last week, right after we taped our show, in fact. I hopped on a plane and went to northern Norway, the town of Tromsø, way up in the Arctic Circle, where there's a great film festival. And I was invited to do a panel there. So lots of stuff happened there that I could endorse. And maybe some of it I'll save for, for future weeks when some of these movies that I saw start to open and be available in the U.S. But for now, because we played a little bit of French radio earlier, it's actually the same station as the show I'm about to endorse. I'm going to endorse a French radio show about movies. You can only listen to it if you are if you know French, but presumably some <laughs> of our listeners do. And Steve has certainly excluded more people with his tiny little pizza place in Vermont endorsement, so I'm doing it. So um, one of the people who I shared uh, a panel with at this Norway Film Festival, one was the great British critic David Thompson, or you might call him the American critic because he's been living here and writing so long, who I was very honored to be talking with and to meet. The other was a French critic named Christine Masson, who hosts a radio program called On aura tu vu, which means we will have seen everything. <laughs> I think it's a movie quote, too. And it's on France Inter, actually the same radio station where Charlotte Rampling made her unfortunate comments. I believe it airs once a week. I've only listened to a couple of them so far, but I'm going to make this my new francophone podcast. It's a little bit like a sort of French film spotting, except it's not always the same discussants. It's always her, Christine and her co-discussant who have on different directors, actors, writers, and uh, and just sort of talk about the contemporary state of the cinema. But she's very opinionated, as she was on the panel. She's not afraid to, um, you know, put down the trendiest, latest movie, but she's got great insights, and she's a delightful person to listen to on the radio. So, on aura-tu vu on France Inter, and you can download it as a podcast. That sounds very cool. I could not understand it, but perhaps I will 
perhaps I will just ambiently let me let it wash over me. Laura, what are you endorsing today? Well, as you know, um, we are reading Tristram Shandy by Lawrence Stern for the great. Uh, a Year in Great Books for Slate Academy. And as a result, I'm doing some research into one of my favorite historical periods, which is England in the 18th century. And so I'm returned to this really yummy history of that period by John Brewer called The Pleasures of the Imagination, English Culture in the 18th Century. And particularly London in the 18th century was just the most exciting city imaginable to me. It's, the people were not as, I'm just going to say, as affected as the French or as the self-important. But it was so lively. There were so many brilliant people. There was just so much ferment in the sciences, the arts, um, particularly in letters with Dr. Johnson. And it was had all of the sort of advantages of a small town, crazy gossip, and everybody knowing everybody else. And yet, the advantages of of a cosmopolis in in its own way, you know, a lot of people and a lot of activity, and I just this book is really conveys that it's it's uh, it's one of these books that's always been hard for me to go back to because for some reason the physical book weighs like four pounds. I don't know <laughs> why. Uh, it does reproduce a lot of images, Hogarth. You know, this it, it was a sort of the point at which the Enlightenment and Romanticism met and kind of banged up against each other, and so it was sort of cynical but sort of idealistic. I, I just love it. It's it's really been delicious to immerse myself in that period again. And and this book, the the pleasures of the imagination, is one of the best books about England in the 18th century that there is. That sounds awesome. That sounds very cool. I'm going to put that on my list. After Tristram Shandy, which I'm working my way through, and just to clarify for listeners, so for Slate Plus, if you join, you can listen to The Year in Great Books, which is the, basically, you just get to join a book club with Laura Miller, which is like everyone's goal in life, I should think. Uh, and she and she and Willa Remus are, are kicking it off. She's going to be having multiple guest hosts this year, including, I think I'm signed up to do one later this year, which I'm excited about. Um but uh, if you want to be part of that conversation and listen to those discussions, you should join Slate Plus at slate.com slash plus. All right. My endorsement is not a highfalutin French radio film show, nor a weighty tome about 18th century uh, uh, England. I am instead going to endorse a raunchy bro comedy that I overlooked, and that was a mistake. On Friday night pre-Blizzard, I was tired after a long week, and my husband and I surveyed the contents of our TiVo, and on it was Neighbors, the movie where Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne play oh, yeah. a married couple, uh, and then a frat moves in next door, led by Zac Efron, and James Franco's younger, funnier brother, whose first name I can't remember. Dave it's, Franco. I think of him as Casey Franco because he, he is to James Franco what Casey Affleck is to Ben <laughs> Affleck. He's like smaller. His head is a little bit rounder. His hair is a little bit shorter. And he's like kind of more wily and winning. Um, but anyway, so Casey Franco, I guess his real name is Dave. Dave. But I'm, I'm going to continue to think of him as Casey. <laughs> this movie is so funny. And I went back and read your review and you gave it props at the time, Dana, for being so funny. But it has many things to recommend it. Number one, Casey Franco. Love that guy. Number two, Rose Byrne, who I think I might be in love with Rose Byrne, even though she gently touched Steve's wrist several, as we discussed <laughs> on our show several months ago. Um, 
she first came to my attention in Bridesmaids, where she played an uptight wasp bitch, and it wasn't entirely clear from the performance whether she was playing one or she just kind of was one, like was the pretty girl playing the pretty girl. Uh, then she played this devilish and delightful villain in Spy, also on Dana's top ten list this year, the Megan McCarthy starring kind of spoof spy comedy, uh, and it became clear that she was a comedic mega genius. Uh, And in this movie, she's wonderful. She's so funny. She gets to be very human. As Dana points out, this movie corrects the ills of some of the Judd Apatow oeuvre. This is an extoller film, The Guy Who Made Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which is another movie I quite like. But by having it not be like, she's not the scoldy wife who's like trying to get Seth Rogen to grow up, which is really what it looked like from the trailer the movie was and was why I was very put off by it. It sort of looked like Rose Byrne had her arms crossed while (laughs) Seth Rogen was like trying to make friends with Zac Efron. to revert to her adolescence, too. Yeah, so they're both new parents, and they sort of hate their frat neighbors, but also kind of wish they were still young and carefree enough to be in a frat and uh, taking shrooms and dancing all night long. And so the movie's sort of about more than their stupid neighbor war in a sweet way, but it doesn't try too hard, and it just made me cackle, like, out loud, robustly, way more than any other comedy I've seen in quite some time. So Neighbors, don't sleep on Neighbors. Cozy, cozy up with neighbors. Has it borne up in your memory, Dana? You were quite. I mean, I had totally forgotten it when, even when you said the title, it didn't ring a bell. But yeah, Rose Byrne really stood out for me. Yeah, and I've been on the fence about this one, the fence between the two neighbors, and now I'm going to jump the f- of of whether to watch it, <laughs> yeah. not of what to think of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so neighbors. The, the lowest brow of the endorsements, but very accessible to you all. Well, your recommendations of John Wick was that I heard on the... I, I watched that and really enjoyed it as well. Never go wrong with the Julia endorsement. <laughs> yeah. We haven't done any kind of comparative ranking of like endorsement value. We should maybe have some data scientists go back and be like, who has made the most worthwhile endorsements in the in the history of the Slate Culture Gab Test? That sounds about as meritocratic as the Oscar race. <laughs> you could have everybody vote on the Facebook page at the end of the year. Uh, that sounds cruel and unusual, I think. Thank you so much, Laura, for filling in for Steve today. It's been a pleasure. Always a treat to talk to you. Thank you, Dana, for helping me hold down the fort. Talk. With two Ks. That's, that's Norwegian that thank you for in thank Norwegian. You. Wait, talk with two Ks? Yeah, I think it's with one K in some other Scandinavian languages, but it's with it's two Ks terse. in Norwegian. Oh, it does not sound like a welcoming and grateful sound. It sounded like, oh, God, I fucked up somehow. <laughs> tuck. I'm just going to go around Slate and stand over people's desks and be like, tuck. <laughs> You can find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Anne Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on itunes.com slash panoply. And of course, last, inexplicably, but not least, our Twitter feed is at slatecult. Fest. For Dana Stevens and Laura Miller, I'm Julia Turner. We'll talk to you next week. What do you know about money? You might know a bunch, but you can always learn more with the Slate Money podcast. Join Fusion's Felix Salmon, Math Babe's Kathy O'Neill, and Slate's Jordan Weissman every week as they talk about the hot finance topics of the day. Subscribe to Slate Money on your favorite podcast app now.